I am Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. All right. We are in South Dakota this week. Again. Again. I don't have much more to say about that other than we're in South Dakota again. Yes. <laughs> we're learning all kinds of new things about South Dakota. Um, last week, we learned about just some of the weirdness of South Dakota. Uh, some fun facts, I guess you could say. This week, we're going to learn about some fun, weird-ass laws they have on the books there. I also have a little culinary piece I think you might enjoy in my true crime story, Eden, because nothing says delightful like talking about cooking and corpses. So, Oh, cooking and corpses. That can be our next podcast. <laughs> no one steal that. TM. TM. <laughs> so I guess I'll dive into these weird laws that I found. Okay, please do. Caveat, a lot of these don't make any sense. Uh, there has to be a story behind them, and I have no idea what that story is. So I'm just going to dive right in to say things like, in the state of South Dakota, horses are not allowed into fountains unless they're wearing pants. All right. So get your horse pants on if you plan on pretending that you're on Friends. Gotcha. Right. But then this also leads to the the universal question is, you know, how do horses wear pants? Yes. Does it go through all four or does it just the two? I know. How am I supposed to dress my horse is really the question. The law needs to be better explained. Thank you very much, (laughs) South Dakota. Uh, This one's odd and oddly specific. It's illegal to lie down and fall asleep in a cheese factory in South Dakota. Oh, okay. Where (laughs) are these coming from? You did not lie. You did not lie at all. Wow. (laughs) I have so many questions about this one, too. I'm like, so what if you're like leaning or standing, you fall asleep on your feet? Are you okay then? Is it just the lying down part that's prohibited? Yeah, I don't know. So many questions. Weird. Okay. Uh, This one is clearly broken every time there's a Hollywood blockbuster. But it's illegal to show any movies in the state of South Dakota that include police officers being struck, beaten, or treated offensively. All right. The propaganda state, South Dakota. Better than Mars. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, yes. I forgot about that. Uh, Here's a city-specific law. In the city of Huron, they apparently do not like static cling, and winter is their enemy because they have a law against causing static. Do not rub your socks on the carpet and touch someone. Mm -mm. Do not do it. That's a nasty big brother trick if I ever heard one. Exactly. And my siblings did it to me all the time. (laughs) They would also rub balloons on my head so my hair would stick up. That's just rude. I know. Attempting to convince a pacifist to abandon his beliefs by threatening to arm wrestle the pacifist is against the law in South Dakota. Is arm wrestling really anti-pacifist, though? Like, you're not actually causing harm to anyone. I guess, but it's also threatening to arm wrestle them, not actually doing it. And then I have all these questions about what was that Sylvester Stallone movie with the arm wrestling? You know what? Shut up, Nicole, because if you don't stop talking, I'm going to arm wrestle you, okay? (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not a pacifist, or am I? Or are you? These are the deep questions that we must ask ourselves. So many questions, so little time. This one is kind of weird, but it kind of makes me giggle. So in South Dakota, all hotels are required to have two twin beds and the beds must be kept two feet apart. The law goes on to state that it's illegal 
to make a love in the space between the twin beds. So I guess you need to choose which bed you're going to use and can you can't push it together. Yeah. I mean, this is the 1950s sitcom law. I mean, from what I heard, you just kind of wink it, wink, and then, you know, then whoops, she's pregnant. That's exactly. That works, right? There was actually this article that I read. Uh, it was like real complaints from like this one resort. And the one thing was, if you hadn't, if you had booked us in the room that we asked for with the two twin beds instead of the one king size bed, my wife wouldn't have gotten pregnant. We're suing. <laughs> like, I'm like, what? Wow. That's very special. This one, aw, this next law definitely sounds like there's a story behind it. So it's illegal to use fireworks to protect your sunflower crop. But it's oddly specific. It doesn't say anything about, you know, wheat or corn or just your flower garden. It's specifically sunflowers and not using fireworks to protect them. Okay, so if you're growing anything else, fireworks are completely fine. I guess, yeah. Did I ever tell you that story about the party I was at and the fireworks? I don't think so. <laughs> so these guys, uh, this was out in Freedon. So it's like it's near Slatington. So it's like middle of nowhere. Okay. And uh, the people that I was hanging out with at this party, that the area was just like, it was huge. Like the house had a lot of land and they decided they were going to go set off some fireworks. And I was like, all right, have fun, whatever. And they set this one firework off I'm like, wow, did you see how big that one was? It's so cool. And I was like, yeah, good job, guys. Who's going to put out the hayfield? <laughs> and then they laughed. I'm like, no, seriously, turn around. The hayfield was on fire. <laughs> I mean, maybe sunflower is really flammable, just like hay, but I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that could be your story behind it. Who knows? I guess. I guess. That is very weird. Very, very weird. Let's see. Do I have one last weird law for you? No, I don't. That's it. All right. Those were certainly very, very weird. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of sense. No, there must be very weird things that go on in South Dakota. I mean, I know there's weird things that go on in South Dakota. I've been doing research about it for the past like two or three weeks. So (laughs) People shoving people into wood chippers and all sorts of things. All kinds of nonsense. All righty. So thank you very much for the weird-ass laws, uh, both Nicole and South Dakota. Uh, it was really a team effort. Yes. And now, Nicole, do you have a story of murder and mayhem for us? I do. I do. So today we're heading to Mount Vernon, South Dakota, located in the southeastern part of the state in Davison County. Mount Vernon is a small city that covers 0.3 square miles and is home to 462 people. I've at least heard of this town. This is good. This is a good start. (laughs) It's located next to Interstate 90, and Mount Vernon bills itself as a progressive community with a small town feel. It was originally called Arlington but was renamed Mount Vernon after George Washington's home in 1881 when the railroad from nearby Mitchell, South Dakota, arrived in town. Oh, so that's true. Maybe that's just where I've heard the name. (laughs) Probably. I'm going to guess that that George Washington's house is a little bit more famous than... (laughs) A little bit more. Just a tiny bit. Just like It's like neck and neck, really. Yeah, it is. Uh, Fun fact, the name change was actually requested by the U.S. Post Office since the name Arlington is a little too close to an already established town nearby called Arlington, South Dakota. Oh, yeah, that would be really confusing. And now I'm also just thinking of Arlen, Texas from uh, King of the Hill. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Mount Vernon has always been a small community. Its first school opened in January 1883. The city was wired for telephone service in 1902. And in 1912, Mount Vernon was lit up with electric lights for the very first time. Ooh. In 1941, the city auditorium was built, and it's still used today for different functions and is referred to as the Old Gym on Main Street. Now, aside from the case I'll discuss shortly, that's all I can really find of note about the city of Mount Vernon. However, fear not, Roasters, my research did lead me to some unique cuisine of South Dakota. Ooh, here we go. Exactly. I know you love talking about local snacks, Eden, so do I. I'm pretty sure that the folks who live in Mount Vernon probably enjoy this food on the regular. I'm afraid. (laughs) Don't be too afraid. It's not too weird. It's actually kind of charming. Okay. Now, some of the distinctive dishes that you'll find in South Dakota, uh, one in particular is called chislick. Have you ever heard of chislick, Eden? It sounds familiar, but I could be thinking of chiclets, so who knows? (laughs) Fair enough. It's that kind of day. It is that kind of day. Now, Chislik is considered the, quote, official nosh of South Dakota, and it's basically something I had never heard of before, but it's actually very similar to a shish kebab, but the beloved Chislik is much simpler. It consists of half-inch cubes of meat, usually lamb, venison, or beef, that's either deep-fried or grilled and traditionally paired with soda crackers like saltines. Okay. Doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, it doesn't sound too bad. It sounds like... They took out all of the onions and peppers from my kebab. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and replaced it with crackers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's served on a stick. Sometimes it's just served the, the meat cubes are served to you. It originated from the German and Russian immigrants who brought the dish with them to South Dakota in the 1870s. And it's basically been popular there ever since. Okay. Uh, the cool thing about Chislik is you can pretty much find it across the state at bars and restaurants, and there's lots of different regional varieties, which I think is kind of charming. For example, in Pierre, the meat is usually battered and deep fried. In Sioux Falls, it'll be lightly dusted with flour before deep frying, and sometimes they serve it with hot sauce. Okay. In Watertown, they always serve it with ranch dressing on the side. Ew, gross. I'm sorry, I hate ranch dressing. <laughs> it's 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 a definitely a uh, contentious dressing for sure. Yes. Meanwhile, in Redfield, they dust it with Lowry seasoning salt, and I think that one might be my go-to. okay. That sounds good. So now that you have Chislik, you understand what that is. Now it's time to move on to some other food that will probably pair really nicely with it. What I'm talking about is an indigenous food that's very prevalent in South Dakota. It's called Wojapi. Okay. God bless you. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Wojapi is a traditional Lakota Sioux dipping sauce, and it's this really thick dipping sauce that's made of uh, mixing a bunch of berries together, like choke cherries and strawberries and blueberries, and you kind of cook it real slow, and it gets super thick, and you can put it on sweet or savory dishes, Um, but typically you'll serve it with fry bread, which is this golden, puffy, doughy, pan-fried bread that they also serve in South Dakota. Okay, I'm down with that. I'll try it. Right? Sounds pretty good. I just always get afraid when it comes to the Midwest and food because of lutefisk. How? Oh, yeah, I mean, you're right to be afraid. Yes. But this is this is indigenous people's food, so you know it's got to be good, fresh, and local. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, if that idea of a sweet berry goodness has, waken, has awakened your sweet tooth, 
and you need a true sugar fix, you can enjoy South Dakota's official state dessert, the humble Kuchin. Kuchin? Yeah, Kuchin. All right. Uh, it's a cake-like German pastry. It's made from sweet dough, and it's filled with a custard. Sometimes they put nuts and fruit into it. And it was first introduced in the 19th century, brought, of course, by German settlers to South Dakota. And the South Dakota variety, this sweet dough filled with custard, has been a favorite among locals ever since. It's interesting because you'll see Kuchens pop up all over the, all over the U.S., and also it's still a common term in Germany because – in Germany, it basically means any kind of cake. Okay. But this specific regional variety is talking about this sweet dough that's stuffed with filling. That makes sense, though, because there's a lot of things like that where it means something specific somewhere else and then a broader term, you know, mm-hmm. other places. Like, for instance, when you hear the word salsa, what do you think of? I think of like salsa that you'd eat with like tortilla chips. Yeah, like that dip. But salsa is just Spanish for the word sauce. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah. True. Good point. And that's very much the case with Colchin. Uh, I feel like it'd be delicious, though, and I would 100% try it if I could get my hands on some South Dakota Colchin. Yeah, I would try it. It sounds good to me. So now that I've triggered a snack attack, let's move on to murder, shall we? Please do. I always love a good murder after my meals. I know. Nothing quite settles the stomach. Yes. Like the disembowelment <laughs> of someone else's. Now, specifically the murder I'll be talking about today is the murder of a young family that transfixed Mount Vernon and its neighboring communities. Uh, Trigger warning, I will talk about the death of this family, which does include the death of young children. So if that's something that upsets you, you may want to skip ahead to Eden's segment of the episode. Now, in the early morning hours of September 8th, 1981... Doug Kirkus, the chief deputy at the Davidson County Sheriff's Department, received an emergency call from his high school friend, John Mathis. Mathis, a 30-year-old farmer who lived about eight miles north of Mount Vernon, said that his family had been attacked and he needed help. Deputy Kirkus called into dispatch and headed out to the Mathis farm. There he found John Mathis wounded with a gunshot in his left arm sitting on a cot in his metal machine shed. A few feet away, his 30-year-old wife, LaDonna Mathis, and two of their three sons, Brian, four years old, and Patrick, two years old, lay dead from gunshot wounds in their bed. Their youngest son, nine-month-old Dwayne, was fortunately in the care of LaDonna's parents. The young Mathis family had been living in the shed while they rebuilt their family home, which had burned to the ground in July of that year. Later in an interview, Deputy Kirkus recalled, quote, that was the first time I'd ever seen anything of that magnitude, end quote. Mount Vernon, along with Davison County, was a relatively quiet and safe place to live. The last homicide that occurred in the county was way back in 1963. As he waited for the sheriff and ambulance to arrive, Deputy Kirkus performed basic first aid on Mathis and also noticed graffiti on the sliding door of the shed that read Mathis sucks. Oh, very, very poetic. Yes, very poetic. The gold spay paint looked fresh and the family last name Mathis was actually misspelled. Hmm. John Mathis was taken to a nearby hospital and police investigators began processing the scene. They discovered that LaDonna Mathis had been shot twice in the head while she slept. Four-year-old Brian had been shot once in the right ear. Two-year-old Patrick had been shot in the back of the neck and then the left eye. Oh. Yeah, the position of little Patrick's body indicated that he was kneeling in bed before the second fatal bullet was fired. Oh, God. 
Ballistic evidence indicated that all three had been shot with the same type of gun, a 22 caliber semi-automatic Marlin rifle loaded with Winchester Western Super X bullets. At the hospital, the police interviewed John Mathis. He said that around 2 a.m., Patrick woke him up because he needed to use the bathroom. Since there wasn't a bathroom in the temporary shelter that the Mathises were staying in, he took his son to the outdoor toilet. On the way back to the machine shed, he heard a hog in distress and the family dog barking. So he settled Patrick back into his bed and then went to the animal pen to check on the hog. As he tied up the dog, he heard a car. He turned back to the shed and saw that the lights were now on. As Mathis headed back to the shed, a man wearing a black stocking over his head and carrying a gun exited the shed. The man and Mathis struggled over the gun and it went off. The bullet struck Mathis' left arm and he passed out from the pain. When he awoke a short time later, the man was gone and he saw blood on Patrick's bed. He immediately called his friend, Deputy Kirkus, for help. Oh, God, I already have so many suspicions right now. Yeah, Eden, tell me how you feel about, about Mathis's explanation. Uh, it sounds fake to me. It sounds, and I could be completely wrong here, guys. I could, my mind could just be completely warped from hearing too many true crime stories and seeing too many TV shows and movies. But right now, it seems like he was somehow shot in a spot that's not vital while everyone else was murdered horribly and shot in horrible, horrible places. Uh, so it just seems like he could have shot himself in the arm and killed everybody. You know, you're pretty much in line with what Sheriff Lyle Swenson thought as well. Okay, good. <laughs> Actually, <sighs> yes. Sheriff Swenson didn't believe Mathis's story either. Uh, he then became Sheriff Swenson's main suspect after a Winchester Western Super X bullet, the same ammo that was used in the killings was discovered in the pocket of the pants that Mathis had been wearing the night his family was murdered. Oh, shit. Well, that doesn't look good for him. No, it does not. Sheriff Swenson conducted an exhaustive search of Matheson's property in an attempt to locate the murder weapon, a twenty-two caliber rifle. Mathis said he did not own a gun of that particular type. The police searched the entire farm, including draining and sending deputies into a manure storage pit. Ooh, gross. Yeah. Despite the stench, they were not able to locate the rifle or any other evidence that could confirm Mathis's involvement in the murders. Talk about a shitty job. <laughs> <laughs> Undaunted, Sheriff Swenson took another look at the fires that had burnt down the family's house a few months earlier. The first fire started around 2.30 a.m. on July 9th, 1981. Coincidentally, around the same time that the family was actually actually murdered, only a few short months later. Oh, shit. Was it arson? Wow. Now, when this fire happened, LaDonna was able to get outside with her three sons, which is pretty impressive if you think about it, because she has like two toddlers and a baby. Oh, yeah, definitely. Then she's superwoman. Exactly. She gets outside and she finds John Mathis outside. He said that he had been working late, finishing up some work when he saw the smoke. Now, this apparently doesn't strike anybody as terribly odd. And that's because John Mathis had a reputation as being a quiet and extremely hard worker who would often work insanely long hours to finish up work on the farm. Okay. See, I don't know him, but it sounded super shady to me. But 
yeah, it still sounds shaded to me, though, the fact that it's like two in the morning and you're still like, what are you doing? It's dark out. Exactly. But who knows? Maybe he's checking on animals, something like that. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt once. It's just, yeah, because when you're doing outdoor work, it normally doesn't happen at night when it's dark. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Now, here's the crazy thing. Two weeks later, on July 22nd, a second fire completely destroyed the house. Oh. Yeah. Odd. Very odd, right? Investigators determined that an electrical fire, possibly the result of a lightning strike, was the cause of the second fire. Seems very odd to me. Yes, That it does. you have a fire and then all of a sudden another fire destroys all evidence of the first fire. <laughs> Maybe the house is cursed. The ground is cursed. You don't know. It's true. You don't know. You never know. Native American burial ground is all I'm going to say. <laughs> Though Sheriff Swenson didn't have a murder weapon, he felt that he had the right man. And he wasn't the only one who suspected Mathis of killing his family. Sheriff Swenson heard from a number of people with theories about the family's murder, including self-proclaimed psychic detective Dorothy Allison. Didn't, didn't Dorothy Allison pop up in one of your previous stories too, Eden? The name sounds familiar, so it's possible. I feel like it was like a child's disappearance, and, and she called it and may have perhaps had some clues. Maybe. Hey, it was probably in Rhode Island or wherever the hell we had everyone doing the psychic stuff. <laughs> True. Dorothy Allison is, is you know, the pride and joy of New Jersey. So uh, I remember her mostly from her appearances on, like, Unsolved Mysteries and things like that. Yeah. There was one show that I was watching for a while, and I forget the name of it, but it was all stuff about how psychics helped solve cases. And I really liked that show. Interesting. Well, either way, Dorothy Allison apparently mentioned the Mathis case, and Sheriff Swenson heard about it, so he called her up. According to Swenson, Allison knew that he was calling from a place that smelled horrifically, and he actually happened to be in the Mathison's hog unit at the time. Oh. <laughs> yeah. She also smelled smoke, although she didn't know about the two fires that had happened uh, to the Mathis family home. She said she saw a series of numbers that made no sense to her, but were tied to the case somehow. Uh, So Sheriff Swenson jotted them down. And after he ended the call, he was startled to see that the numbers she recited matched the license plate on Mathis's pickup. Oh, wow. And see, that's the thing that I hate about like doing anything with my psychic abilities, because I'm just like, I don't know if this means anything at all. I could be sounding like an idiot right now, but this is what popped in my head. Like. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I could never make a full-time career out of it. Fair enough. Fair enough. So that's all he really got from, from, from Dorothy Allison. So nothing so conclusive or anything that would indicate where the murder weapon was, unfortunately. But still pretty damn cool. Yeah, but still interesting that it popped up onto her psychic radar. Some of the other rumors that swirled around town were that John Matheson's father, who had arrived at the farm shortly after Deputy Kirkus the night that his grandchildren and daughter-in-law were murdered. He had shown up because he was close by because he had helped his son dispose of the murder weapon and the paint that was used to leave the graffiti message. John Matheson stated that he had actually called his father immediately after hanging up with Deputy Kirkus. According to Sheriff Swenson, quote, John was was kind of his dad's pride and joy, his wonder boy who could do no wrong, end quote. Matheson's father also cut short the police interview at the hospital, saying that his son had been through enough that night and he didn't want the police to talk to his son anymore after he gave his initial statement about what happened to his family. 
Now, despite their best efforts, the police could not find any evidence that supports the theory that Mathis's father in any way helped his son cover up the murders or that he was at the farm before Deputy Kirkus that night. Okay. But there were lots of rumors and innuendo that he was somehow involved. Despite this lack of hard evidence, Sheriff Swensing was firmly convinced that he had the right man, and he arrested John Mathis, charging him with three counts of first-degree murder in the fall of 1981. Mathis's trial was set for April 1982, and the decision was made to move the trial south to the city of Yankton in the hopes of finding an unbiased jury pool. However, the news media across the entire state of South Dakota was all abuzz about the story, and they reported on every detail that came to light in the month-long trial ahead. The prosecution was actually led by State Attorney General Mark Meyer Henney, although they didn't have the murder weapon and they didn't have any clear physical evidence that pointed to John Mathis as the perpetrator of the murders. They did have a ton of circumstantial evidence against him. Oh, yeah. He seems super shady. Right. So first, there's the first house fire that took place on the Mathis farm. And the prosecution framed that as his first attempt to kill his family. Uh, they also said that the second fire could have actually been Mathis's attempt to cover up the evidence of arson that may have been involved in the first attempt. The unfired Winchester 22 bullet that they found in Mathis's pants pocket, that he had the pants that he had on that night. It was very similar to the slugs that were found in his family's bodies as well. Exact same type of ammo, actually. Uh, at trial, a 17-year-old neighbor named Kim Tatum, who babysat the Mathis children, testified that Mathis had kissed and fondled her on multiple occasions. So he's creepy on top of it. Yeah, that's gross. Yeah, super gross. He told her that he had wished that he had met Kim before he had actually started dating his wife, which is even creepier because she's like 17 or 30, dude. Like, yeah, gross. that's no, no, thank you. When Kim's mother found out about this, she went right over to Mathis's property and told him to leave her daughter alone or she would rat him out to his wife, LaDonna. And apparently, by all accounts, that's when his uh, activities with Kim ceased. Okay, well, that's good at least. I'm glad yeah. they stopped. Mm hmm. Uh, Mathis's rich wristwatch was allegedly broken during his struggle with his family's attacker, but the physical evidence really didn't line up to this. He didn't have any bruising on his wrist or arm like you would have if something happened and pulled your wristwatch off or something slammed into your wristwatch. Uh, two jewelers actually took the stand to testify that the amount of damage on the watch seemed to indicate that it had actually been smashed multiple times. And if that was true, why didn't John have any bruising on his arm? Yeah, weird. Also, the time on the broken watch read 325, even though Mathis claimed that he had woken up at 2 a.m. and that the estimated time of his family's death and his struggle with the intruder was around 2.30 a.m. Huh. The last piece of circumstantial evidence that the prosecution presented to the jury was the blood evidence. The only blood they found at the scene was actually inside the shed. And that's despite Mathis's claim of struggling with his attacker and being shot and wounded and passing out outside of the shed. Yeah, there would be a blood trail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole bunch of physical evidence that doesn't quite line up with his story. But at the same time... 
his defense team points out the very simple fact that there's no murder weapon. And things have gone to trial and, you know, succeeded without one. But it is Mm -hmm. rare. It's true. It is rare. The other thing that was kind of interesting that the defense pointed out is that while John Mathis didn't own a 22 caliber rifle, uh, his father and brother owned several weapons of that type. All of them were accounted for, and none of them matched the ballistics from the murder weapon. Huh. Well, I mean, he could have gone out and bought one just for the occasion. Who knows? True. His special family annihilating gun, you know. Trying to be festive. You know, you need something special. <laughs> it's a special occasion. Uh, the defense team also pointed out that no gold paint was found on the farm and that John Mathis didn't have a trace of gold paint on his clothes or on his hand that night, which you would probably find if somebody had spray painted something onto the shed door. That's true. They also said it was unlikely that he would have been clever enough to think ahead to misspell his own last name when writing the graffiti on the shed door. I don't know. That would be my first go-to. I know. I chuckled when I read that. I'm like, you okay. <laughs> You're like, my client's not smart enough to do this. like wow harsh my client's not smart enough to do this he can't even spell to begin with oh crap (laughs) now here's the weirdest thing that popped up as part of the defense's uh, claim that Mathis is innocent so regarding again going back to that Winchester Western Super X bullet that they found in his pocket now Mathis said that his son Patrick had actually found the bullet while playing on the farm the day before the murders. Uh, after he discovered his son with it, he, of course, took the shell away from him and put it in his pocket. And then he forgot about it. Of he course. says he forgot about it because he was familiar with that type of ammo and it was littered all over that rural part of South Dakota. Just bullets everywhere in the dirt. What is going on in South Dakota? <laughs> First Sioux Falls and now this. I know. It's a wild, wild place, my friend. So at trial, this is also very interesting. Mathis's brother, Vern, testifies that he actually may have been the source of the bullet that Patrick found because he used that ammo when he would visit the farm and shoot clay pigeons. And he had done that several weeks prior to the murders. Okay. And then weirdly, and there's speculation that this may not be a natural happenstance, this may have been a plant, a Bent Winchester Western Super X bullet casing was found by the jury on the sidewalk in front of the Yachton County Courthouse near the end of the trial. What? Yeah. So this really went a long way for the jury to make them seem that Mathis's claim that this ammo was very common and it was everywhere. It made it just, just that much more believable for the jury that maybe he wasn't crazy. Maybe that is a thing. People have lots of guns here, you know. If, if sure. they're very easily influenced, maybe. <laughs> exactly. Now, three days after deliberating, the jury found John Mathis not guilty of all three murders. Ugh. And they acquitted him in the end for a couple of reasons. Uh, according to some of the jurors who later spoke to the press, they felt that the prosecution had no witnesses, no murder weapon, and so little physical evidence. Uh, this murder case was so large that the local press will has done retrospectives at tw- the 20-year anniversary, 30-year anniversary, and the 40-year anniversary. And they've talked to people involved in the case in all of those instances through the years. And in some of the later interviews with people who were on the jury, they indicated, too, that they just didn't want to believe that this man would kill his family. It was a different time. Some of the jurors said that 
you really didn't think that people were capable of hurting their own children that way. Well, I can note a bunch of family annihilators that, you know, would prove different. Exactly. I think it was just a very small town in the yeah. early 80s in South Dakota. So I don't think people want to think that of their neighbor. LaDonna's parents definitely believe that Mathis killed their daughter and their grandchildren. Unfortunately, they had no choice but to return their one surviving grandson, Dwayne, to Mathis. Mathis went on to live a very quiet, reclusive life on his farm, keeping to himself mostly, and raising his son Dwayne as a single father. By all accounts, John Mathis has not been in any legal trouble since going to trial for the murders of his family. Uh, He is described as kind of a moody guy. I read a couple articles that say that he will, you know, chase people's dogs off his property and doesn't really like visitors. But I'm sure part of that has to do with the fact that all of his neighbors probably believe he killed his family. Oh, yeah. Right. Not going to be mayor anytime soon. And that's kind of the shitty thing. Like, even if you are proven innocent, Mm -hmm. you never quite get away from the stigma of it. You're still going to be that guy who was on trial for killing his family, Mm -hmm. regardless of whether you did it or not. Interestingly, his surviving son, Dwayne, agreed to do an interview when they did the 2011 retrospective on the murders. And he was pretty unwavering in the belief that his father was innocent. Hmm. According to Dwayne, quote, I don't believe he did it. If he did it, I wouldn't still be here, end quote. So it's basically the idea that, like, if my dad really did this, why didn't he take the opportunity to kill me then in my childhood? Why did he spend his life raising me as a single father? Unless he was the favorite. Maybe he was the one that wasn't trouble. I mean, maybe. He was only nine months old, though, at the time of, of his siblings and mother's murder. Exactly. So if he wanted to make a clean break, he could have just killed the baby, too. Mm-hmm. Now, after all this time, it's still there still isn't a clear-cut motive for John Mathis to even have committed these crimes. Um, when you look at what he gained from the death of his wife and two sons, it's literally nothing. He gained nothing. So that's another problem with this case is that there's no clear reason on why he would murder them. It's yeah. not like he had a lover that he wanted to marry. He still he never remarried, as far as I could tell from my research. So that motivation also seems to be a weird gap in the case. Yeah. Now, while the authorities have always believed that Mathis is guilty, they have they have never uncovered any evidence pointing to any other suspects, though I'm not sure how hard they looked. True. I mean, a lot of times you do get kind of tunnel vision and track mm-hmm. down like one person, and he did seem pretty damn good for it. So Yeah. Sheriff Swenson, who's since retired, uh, said that he talked to Mathis several times after his acquittal. He said that Mathis used to stop by his office and ask if there were any new leads or any new suspects in the murders. And he did this for years afterwards. Hmm. Once when Mathis learned about a serial killer who may have operated in South Dakota, he went to Sheriff Swenson and asked if that serial killer who was arrested somewhere else in the country may have actually been the person who killed his wife and sons. Swenson checked into it, but ended up discovering and telling Mathis that there was no way that the man could have done the crime. He wasn't in South Dakota on that date. While the murder of LaDonna, Brian, and Patrick Mathis is not actively being investigated, the Davison County Sheriff's Department did turn over a few boxes of evidence related to the investigation to the South Dakota Division of Criminal Investigation Cold Case Unit. 
but it's unclear from my research if there's actually an active cold case investigation underway or if it was just sort of a passing of the guard around these unsolved murders. Yeah, true. So that's the sad. I think it's funny chose cold cases. I mean, yeah, it's that's a sad, crazy story of the Mathis family murder. And it's just it seems that, you know, it's either a cold case because they didn't have the evidence and they were so hyper focused on proving that John Mathis did it. Or maybe John Mathis did it and he got away with murder. I'm not really sure what to believe either way, because, I mean, he really seems good for it. But with some of the other things that you said, it also seems like maybe he didn't do it so i i don't know it is very strange because yeah the biggest part of it is there there wasn't any motive like you said Mm -hmm. so that unless he just snapped and went psycho what would be his reason exactly it wasn't like his farm was in any kind of distress there wasn't any financial evidence it's not like he made a big payday from life insurance it's just very odd because I think um, what that's what attracted me to this case so much because – and I was so excited to share it with you because while it's horrific, it's still very interesting that you know, it's what seems like a classic case of a family annihilator turns out to maybe be something else that's going on. Yeah. I mean it just seems so hard to believe that it could be anyone else though with the fact of the fires and the other mm-hmm. fire and that you know, it just seems too – I don't know. Yeah, unless there was something like un- untoward that Mathis was possibly involved in that he didn't want to implicate himself in any kind of crypt. Like maybe he was involved in some other criminal activity and didn't want to like implicate himself. Because that's the other thing that I was tossing around because the idea of like the graffiti and the house catching fire and that sort of thing uh, struck me as kind of odd too. Yeah, But again, it could be someone with a vendetta. Yeah, exactly. And we'll never know because, again, Sheriff Swenson, like a lot of the articles I read in his interviews, like he was sure from the start as soon as he heard about it that Mathis did it. I mean, look at me. Look at my response. I immediately Mm -hmm. thought that Mathis did it too. So I don't blame him. But at the same time, you cannot let yourself get tunnel vision with these cases. And that's how cases end up cold. Mm -hmm. And then you want to prosecute too fast and don't have enough evidence. And that's how people walk away if they did do it. Also, I imagine it's probably very difficult to trying to gather evidence for this case considering the county hadn't had a murder in like 18 years. <laughs> yeah, and it it's it's weird when it's like a real safe place mm-hmm. because they're not used to it. They don't know how to handle the investigation. They haven't done it, you know. And then also it was the 80s. So you have not the, you know, you don't have the technology that we have today. Mhm. Mhm. So my sources for this story were travelsouthdakota.com mountvernonsd.com, dglobe.com, upi.com, onlyinyourstate.com, and then some articles from newspapers. I use articles from the Rapid City Journal, the Mitchell Republic, and the Argos Leader. Oh, great. That was mine from last week, I think. (laughs) Like most of my articles are from there because I just kept finding more and more stuff there. Yeah, yeah. Some solid newspapers. Yeah. I appreciate that they actually have like the newsprint available in archives online. I'm like, oh, great. I can actually go through the whole paper. Yeah, that's perfect. All right. So uh, we're going to take a short break and then we'll be back. I have a weird news story for you and then my story. And we're back. Nicole. Yes, Eden. Are you ready to hear the news? I'm ready. Let's hear the news. All right. 
Today's story comes from Daily Mail, and the headline is, Married pastor who quit the church to become a stripper after coming out as queer says selling X-rated content on OnlyFans is her new calling. Oh my God, there's so much to unpack in that headline. (laughs) I know, and she's hot too. Like, I don't see how she was a pastor to begin with. (laughs) Hot girls can love God too, Eden. I guess so, but still, it's just, I've I've never seen one as hot as her. Um, (laughs) Anyway, here's the news. A pastor who quit her role in the church to become a stripper says that selling expert content online is her new calling. Nicole Mitchell, 36, from Orange County, California, grew up in a strict Baptist family and was training to become the leader of her Christian congregation, but abandoned the pulpit after discovering she was queer. How do you not know when you're a child? I mean, if you come from a super religious family, I'm sure it's something that you can repress the heck out of. I don't know. I came from a super religious family and I still knew. I mean, knowing and believing and being okay with it are different things. That's true, I guess. Okay. Moving on. (laughs) The mother of three appeared on This Morning Today. It just keeps getting more complicated. (laughs) I know. Revealing that after coming out as bisexual, she no longer felt she had a place in the church and decided to fulfill her teenage fantasy of becoming an er erotic dancer. I mean, girls got a dream? I mean, that's good. I mean, your teenage dream is being a stripper. All right. Sure. Why not? I mean, I'll support you, I guess. Yeah. Why not? Let your freak flag fly. So she now shares raunchy pictures on her Instagram account, which has amassed nearly 95,000 followers and has an OnlyFans account where she sells further racy content to paying customers. It always was a part of the church, she explained. Yes, that's exactly how it is written. And loved the church and the people and did all I could to fulfill my leadership calling in the church until I couldn't fit there. I was queer. My church didn't accept queer people. I had these desires and I decided to finally step into the unknown and see where they led me. And it led me here. Okay. Nicole accepts that her new profession could be considered sinful by her former congregation, but trusts that she has discovered her calling. What I do is very polarizing, she said. People are either A-OK with it or they're not OK with it. So at the end of the day, I have to decide what I am called to do and trust that calling with my life and let the chips fall where they may. A lot of people have supported me, but I have lost a lot along the way. The mother was married to her husband of seven years, John, when she came out as bisexual, who she says she was completely accepting of her sexuality and has supported her every step of the way. And that is the end of the article. I mean, I'm glad she has a good man. Yeah, I'm glad that he accepted her for who she is. That's cool. I mean, much better than the church did for her, apparently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm I'm totally confused by everything that happened in that story. But <laughs> I'm also very supportive of her. If she wants to do that, then go for it. Yeah. it's You know what's odd to me about that story is that... Everything? I, oh, yeah. Everything. But <laughs> that it's also a thing. Like yes, that I, this I, has I, to be news. Yeah, and like it's kind of like it's it's a it's a glance outside of my own personal bubble, and I think it's just you know the the people I I talk to, the things I read, it's all very open and queer positive, and the fact that like someone's like, nope, this I can't do it. I'm gonna leave the church, and I guess I'm gonna strip because I always wanted to. It's like, okay, you do you, but also yeah. I'm sorry it was a struggle for you because that shouldn't be a struggle for anybody. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And it is it's quite the career change. And I mm-hmm. guess I wish her the best. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure sister's making bank. Oh, good yeah. for her. Why not do it while you can? Probably more than she made as a pastor. So oh, there we go. Definitely more than she made as a pastor. <laughs> do you wonder if she still tries to share like Jesus's message? Oh, I have seen strippers for Jesus before. So I know. I'm just curious because she like t- she still speaks about her calling. So I'm just curious if that's going to be like something she continues to to do. But I guess not because she felt like she didn't have a place in the church. But maybe. But I don't know. I mean, if she's still like, you know, down with the JC, then maybe. I just need to create a uh, a news alert for her name so that I can follow her. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I want to find out like the rest of her story, see how things go. But enough about stripping pastors. I guess. Okay, fine. Because I have a story of haunted places. All right. That's a fair trade off. Okay, good. So my story for this week takes place right outside Pierre, South Dakota. You probably all know that Pierre is the state capital of South Dakota, so I'm sure it's no surprise that it's also the county seat of Hughes County. It's the eighth most populous city in South Dakota, as it has a population of 13,646, which might not sound like a lot, but as we discussed last week, I think, right, Nicole, South Dakota doesn't have a huge population. Right. So it's actually the second smallest population in the country for a state capital. And if you're curious as to which the first is, look no further than the other state with a French-sounding capital, Montpellier, Vermont. <laughs> tiny tiny capitals mean it's going to be in French. I guess so. La petite capitale. Um, <laughs> anyway, South Dakota's state capital has actually never changed. Which is weird because a lot of them do over time. Yeah. Pierre has been the capital since it became a state in 1889. Pierre actually began as a trading post across the Missouri River from Fort Pierre, which is where the name comes from. The strongest tornado ever to hit Hughes County actually hit Pierre. It was an F3, so you'll know what the levels are like if you've seen the movie Twister, have had any interest in storm chasing, which probably also means that you've seen the movie Twister. I've never seen the movie Twister. What? I know. That's the same reaction my wife had when I made that confession not so long ago. Uh, Tori Amos is on the soundtrack. You need to see the movie. She's also on the soundtrack of Toys, and I never watched that either. Oh, that's right. She was in the soundtrack of Toys. You, you're not missing much with Toys. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> I finally saw it when I was an adult. <laughs> so, But I saw Twister in the drive-in when it came out, which is great because there's a drive-in scene in Twister. So Wikipedia didn't say how much property damage was done by this tornado, but I do know that 10 injuries were sustained. So it seems like they got pretty lucky, I think. Uh, I'm here to talk about a specific part of Pierre, though, a nice little getaway with lush greenery and what looks like peaceful surroundings, but might just be one hell of a terrifying place to be. This is the story of La Flamboise Island. Mm. Or as the internet told me to say it, La Famboys. I'm really, I know you told me that before we started recording, but I just chuckle every time. I'm like, that's gotta be a weird local pronunciation. It's Yeah, it's just, it's too, I can't, I, I cannot do it. So sorry, South Dakota, if that's really how you pronounce it. I just can't. Uh, so as soon as I heard about a haunted island, I knew I had to cover this story. And as I was typing this, I did get a little scared, but not because of ghosts. As you know, it is summer right now. And you may tape that air conditioner up as much as possible, but sometimes things come through into our world. 
<laughs> a bug. It was a bug. And it was in my keyboard. I pressed yes. a button and it came crawling out at me. I'm surprised I didn't finish this. I'm surprised I even finished this story, to be honest. <laughs> so anyway, this island is very pretty to look at. It's got these nice little beaches, and I do mean little, so don't really plan on a day at the beach or anything. It's mostly just rocks, I think. But lots of forest area and wildlife galore. It's located on the Missouri River. This island is actually recorded in Lewis and Clark's journals, which I thought was pretty interesting. Hmm. They were there in 1804. They called it Good Humored Island when they were there for the first day. But however, on the second day, when they went further at the river, they had a run-in with some Tetan Sioux tribes people that I guess didn't go so well, and they called that part of the island Bad Humored Island. Okay, guys, you got to rethink this naming convention. I know you're quote-unquote discovering stuff, but seriously, mm-mm. Discovering stuff that already has people living on it is not much of a discovery, but okay. Whatever, Ramon. Yeah, exactly. So in all fairness, though, you are kind of on someone else's land, you know, so they have a right to be angry when you're there, Lewis and Clark. So the current name for this island is because of a man named Joseph Laframboise who I guess could not get enough of his own name because he built a fort west of the island on the mouth of a place called the Bad River, which I don't know why he didn't just pick a good one, but he called his fort Fort Lamboise. Dams have redirected some of the water now, but before the 1960s, the island would flood a bit from the rising of the river, which was actually really beneficial for the cottonwood trees, which are native to the island. Cedar, ash, and Russian olive trees are now on the island as well as the original cottonwood ones. Hmm. There's an entire area here with a bunch of stuff to do, so it's got a ton of wooded areas and animals to keep you entertained. There are various hiking trails that you can also bike on. Bird watching is a big thing here, and they seem to have a large variety of birds native to the island, with warblers making up around half of those populations. Hmm. You can also go boating, fishing, and canoeing along with cross-country skiing as a listed activity, which just seems weird to do on an island because I don't imagine a lot of slopes, but okay. Cross-country skiing on an island is a thing, apparently. Sure. I mean, that like I read that with as much speculation as uh, that do you love your melon <laughs> thing. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can also hunt in some spots, uh, but the one thing that had me a little confused was one of the listed activities uh, was interpretive signs. What what? the hell does that even mean? Like, do you see signs to interpret? Do you? you... I I don't know. There wasn't like a link to click on. So I have no clue. Do you like interpretive dance to a sign? So everybody just go to La Framboise and find out for us. Just remember to say La Framboise. <laughs> so, sounds like if you if you poorly pronounce it, it sounds like Prithamboy. A little bit, yes. So New Jersey, quickly. here we come. <laughs> uh, Sorry, continue. No problem. Access to the island is via a causeway off Poplar Avenue in Pierre. I don't know the end of this story, but I did find an interesting article from 1999 about protests on the island. And I think it may have been the same time as the tornado touching down because the article mentioned a big storm coming as well. 
So apparently back in 1999, a group of Sioux protesters decided to stage a sit-in on the island where they camped out in teepees and nylon tents, according to the article that I read. The reason for this was a deal going through back then that would give South Dakota 91,000 acres of shoreline that had previously been designated for the Sioux people over 100 years ago before that in the Laramie Treaty of 1868. Oh, that Laramie Treaty. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how history repeats itself. I know. that's Well, that's the same treaty, too, that they've been just ignoring for ages. Yeah. Mm -mm. So it's like, all right, you already took their land away once. Please don't fucking do it again. So the article also stated that due to the erosion, which I am almost positive that this means on the island, but they didn't specify, they found several sacred Native American burial sites. So two things here. First off, shouldn't that be a sign that they shouldn't just yeah should just get their damn land back and secondly do you want a haunting this is how we get a haunting (laughs) i mean yes you're 100 accurate like we've always been here it's our land look there's our dead people also do you want a haunting exactly happen everybody watch poltergeist i'm telling you (laughs) so like everything i came across talked about this rich history of the island without stating what that rich history was other than Lewis and Clark, which, although fun to know, doesn't seem enough to me. So I feel like everything else had probably just been either whitewashed or lost to time. So the only real way to know for sure is by going to the island and taking a look around, since the website mentioned historical interests as one of the attractions. Okay. So maybe they either have like a historical tour or maybe signs interpretive ones with fun (laughs) facts or something i don't know i'm gonna interpret this sign as being historical in nature (laughs) exactly so one cool thing that i do know that they have which is coming up soon on october 24th 2021 is the halloween hike which i would be more than up for so now i think it might be time for me to tell you what really makes me want to go to this island or maybe i want to run away in terror i'm not entirely sure yet So to start, I just want to say with names like Bad Humored Island and Bad River, maybe this isn't the greatest place ever if you aren't looking to be murdered by ghosts. So for ages, campers and other visitors have said that they could hear weird sounds coming from the woods at night, but that's far from all this creepy island has to offer in the way of ghosts because a lot of people have seen apparitions when hiking here, especially through the densest areas of the forest. So first, there's the spirit of a Native American woman, probably Sue, I would imagine, who appears to hikers and warns them off the trails and tells them to go back. Mm, That's really scary and ominous. Oh, yeah. She's like, no, get off this trail. Go back. Like, I don't know if it's like, get off my land or if it's you're not safe, but it sounds like a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. So. People have also seen the shapes of bodies in the trees on hikes and heard strange noises and phantom footsteps, which no thank you. These occurrences seem to be a lot more common at night, too, which of course makes them even more creepy. Mm-hmm. And there's this really common story, which is scary in and of itself. A visitor seeing a little boy who seems like he needs help. He then leads the person unlucky enough to cross his path deeper and deeper into the woods before disappearing. Nope. Yeah, and then no one can find him. So he's like, hi, follow me. I'm in trouble. Okay, gonna get you lost in the woods. Okay, thanks. Bye. 
Oh, that's not the creepy. Let me take you it's to just... my mommy. She's lost. Needs help. Like, oh. oh. No, thank you. No, yeah, no fucking thank you. Thank you. There are also said to be many ghosts of Native Americans on the island that I believe are probably just residual energy because I don't think they really interact with people much. Uh, a lot of people get orbs in their pictures that they take here on the island. And when paranormal investigators go here, they tend to get a lot of fluctuation in the electromagnetic fields. Uh, people who visit here say that they feel as if they're being watched, and many have reported hearing disembodied voices and whispers, which, no thanks. If I wanted that, I'd be schizophrenic. No. Sorry, when you say whispers, I, immediately I just think of careless whispers. And, I thought you, you know. were going to go that direction, because the second <laughs> you started talking, then all I heard in my head was careless whispers. I'm like, no. Sorry. <laughs> I just love that, that song, but still. So... All in all, I'd say this place is definitely creepy, but I would still love to go and check it out and see if I see anything. What about you, Nicole? Do you want to camp out in the woods with me? I mean, you know me. I don't camp, but I do enjoy a good hike every once in a while. So that Halloween hike sounds kind of nice. Although if we see any little boys, we're just going to ignore them like I normally do when I see children. Yes, I'm going to turn my head the other way and be like, nope, sorry, kid can't help you. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. I'd feel really bad if it was an actual living child. There's other people on the island. I mean, that's true. someone else can help. There's like, you know, interpretive people there who understand things. Understand about the signs. signs. <laughs> <laughs> interpretive signs. I think this one says, Do you love your melon? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my sources for this week were Wikipedia, gfp.sd.gov, onlyinyourstate.com, travelselfdakota.com sdpb.org and werewolves.com yes where is in werewolf and then woofs as in dogs.com i like that werewolves it's a good name it is kind of cute well thanks for that eden i i enjoyed that learning about a haunted island yes i i needed to do an island i thought that was so cool yeah it's extra spooky too because you're like isolated all you know Exactly, and it's not just that plague island in Italy. <laughs> Where we get that quarantine word from. Exactly. <laughs> well, if you all enjoyed today's episode, we'd love to hear your feedback, or if you have suggestions for other topics or episodes, we're happy to hear those too. You can contact us at our email address, which is roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also go to our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. You can find us on social media at Roadside Horror Show on Instagram and Facebook and at Roadside Horror on Twitter. We'd like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro music. Until next week, Roadsters, creep, creep on, on creeping creepin on. on. <laughs>